Welcome to the Zanbergen Report, where wealth strategies and pop culture collide, featuring your distinguished host and certified financial planner, Bart Zandbergen. Welcome to our show of dream chasers and wealth makers. We are thrilled to be back in the studio today with a new episode of the Zanbergen Report. I'm proud to bring in the movers, shakers, and difference makers who are passionate about sharing what they have learned and what you need to know today. Happy to be back in the studio again today with my partner, Tish Burbaum, and our special guest, John Jennings. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. From St. Louis, Missouri. From St. Louis. Okay, so you're super excited to be here. I'm super excited. I always love visiting California. Great, even if it's virtual. Even if it's virtual. We'll take it. So Tish and I have started a journey down um, financial behavior. And so our show has had the theme over the last few weeks. John is the perfect person in this sequence of shows. He has written a book called The Uncertainty Solution. Uh, Tish and I had the honor of hearing him speak. And uh, I know we spoke a lot about the book and financial behavior and and, uh, addressing uncertainty. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And John, as I went through uh, some of the notes of your book and some of the um, accolades that you got, I love one of the quotes, uh, and I think it's so true. Uncertainty is the only certainty there is. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's pretty pretty profound. Um, so how about help us out? Tell us a little bit beyond this amazing yeah. book that you wrote. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so I'm the president and chief strategist of St. Louis Trust and Family Office. So we are a national uh, multifamily office. We have clients all over the U.S. We work with about 60 families and we have about 60 employees. So uh, that's that's fun. Um, we started 20 years ago out of the ashes of Arthur Anderson. Um, in addition to my day job at St. Louis Trust, I also teach a few classes at Washington University's graduate school in the wealth and asset management program. So that's fun. And uh, I write for Forbes and I have a blog called The Interesting Fact of the Day, theifod.com, where I write times a week about things that might be interesting to some people. It's really varied all over the place. Well, um, it's always great to have a classic underachiever on the show. So welcome. (laughs) So, all right. So let's talk about um, where we are today. There seems to be some uncertainty in the lives of many. Um, if we just if we just alone talked about um, financial, right? We've got interest rates where no one really knows. We have a we have an idea. Inflation may have done an about turn, which is still unclear. Anyway, I could go on and on, but there is classically a lot of uncertainty and. Everyone on this call knows that uncertainty doesn't fare well in, in at the very least, the stock market. There is obviously behavior behind that. So, John, I'm going to open it up right there and, and let you comment on that. And we'll go from there. Yeah. So, you know, we all are just bombarded with uncertainty everywhere. I mean, whether it's our daily lives or if it's a business or it's you know, definitely in the stock market. And even when things seem like they're going really well in the stock market, you know, even, even that gives a lot of uncertainty. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, Tish and Bart, you deal with this all the time. When the stock market's way up, clients are like, oh, my gosh, it can't go on forever. What should I do? Right? <laughs> yeah. so even even when things are up, you know, people are really looking to, to the future. And, you know, uh, we've evolved 
to be pattern recognizers. It's really what's given our species a survival advantage is, is the, our ability to recognize patterns. So when we can't see a pattern or we're unsure about a pattern, it, it causes us anxiety and, and, and worry and stress. And, and that's true in the financial markets or in our daily lives. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to, I'm going to start real high level and then we'll start peeling back the onion because I know you have a lot to say about that. So right now we're faced with classic uncertainty with where the stock market is going. We're approaching the end of the year. Um, all of us on this call have clients that are getting, you know, closing in on retirement. And so there's some anxiety around that uncertainty. What is some of the science uh, behind that? And then hopefully some advice that you would give around that. Yeah. Yeah, so what the science says about how we react to uncertainty is there's a lot of ways we react, but there's four major ones. So the first is something that's called the cognitive need or the, the need for cognitive closure. So seizing and freezing. So what we do is we, we, we love explanations because it helps us feel like we can make sense of the world. It helps us feel like we can recognize a pattern. So when we feel uncertain, we look for really the first plausible explanation is what we tend to do is, is grasp the first plausible explanation that fits our worldview and that seems to explain what's going on. So that's the seizing. And then yes. we freeze on it because we don't want to re we don't want to revisit the uncertainty later. So, you know, a great example is during COVID. So there was so much uncertainty about what was happening, especially early on with COVID. And you had all sorts of different uh, people grasping at different explanations like you had some people say oh it's you know it's no worse than the flu everything's fine there's no problem <laughs> uh, no need to mask no need for vaccines you had people on the other side saying oh my gosh this is this is horrible it's like the you know it's like the plague, the and, plague yeah yeah we, we we shouldn't go anywhere and we're gonna wear a mask even in a car <laughs> we're traveling by ourselves, <laughs> you, you know, and, and you and, still see that by the way, diving down the road, people are wearing their masks. I, in saw their car. I saw it yesterday. I'm like, who are you masking against? Right. And, and but then the, the science started revealing different things about the virus. And then the virus was, was, was mutating and evolving and people still like to stay with whatever camp they were, they were in. It's, it's fascinating. Right. Yeah. Related to that, we become information junkies. And we saw this in COVID as well. So we had all this uncertainty. And, you know, some people are like, okay, I don't want to read anything about it because it's too stressful. But for a lot of people, they read as much as they could. I know I'm in that camp. You know, I, yeah. I, I started following on Twitter. Like, if you look at my, my, my Twitter now, I follow all sorts of epidemiologists and infectious disease experts. Like, wow, you know, <laughs> and, and we become information junkies. And, and that makes sense for things that... You, that are unknown but become can become known but there are things that are unknowable right so we try to get all this information on the unknowable like what's the stock market going to do next year so every year for forbes i write an article called what will the stock market do in and you put in the year so i'm in the midst of writing that now what will the stock market do in 2023 and it gets so many clicks it gets tens of thousands of clicks when my regular articles get somewhere between two and ten thousand um and people just click on it like crazy because they're like, oh, we, we really want to have more information. It leads into, you know, if an expert tells you what's going to happen in the future, even if they're wrong, we feel more certain. Right. And, and and what I say, I'll just go ahead and tell you so you don't need to look up or read my article because it's the same every year. 
<laughs> it is. But the article does change. I say the same thing in a different way. Um, what the research will tell you about predicting the stock market is, is that if you look at patterns, the stock market's up about two thirds of the time, calendar year basis. So what you can say about the stock market is it'll probably be up next year, but it might be down. <laughs> You'll be on every time. I know. And, and That's you know, hysterical. If you, if you, there, there's no, there is no economic indicator out there that is, that is, that will reliably tell you what next year's stock market returns will be. There's, there's so not. True. So if, true. If, if there were one, we'd then, all be reading that one. <laughs> well, and, and then if you're like, okay, the, the economic indicator says the market's going to be down next year, you'd want to sell, but the buyers would know it too, right? Right. We kind of destroy. And, and then the, the final thing that we really do when faced with uncertainty, you know, there's more, but a big one is we, we associate with groups that think like we do. And you can see this happening in your own lives. We saw it with COVID. Um, but yeah, and, and one of the most fascinating things I read is from a sociologist named Ari Kruglansky. And he said, the truth is whatever your social, social group says it is. I mean, pause and think about that for a minute. And, and it's true. And it explains how we can be so polarized ideologically here in the U.S. where one side thinks the other side's just nuts and the other side thinks the other side's double nuts, right? It's because your social group determines what you believe is the truth. Mm. And there, there's almost no amount of just facts or even science that can change your mind if your social group thinks a particular thing. And as we feel more uncertain, um, we want to associate more and more with groups who think just like we do. So we end up being in these echo chambers. And you see that happening investment-wise, and I think it explains somewhat you know, a little bit of what's going on in crypto, because you have these true believers in crypto that are like, oh, my gosh, completely decentralized finance, decentralized, you know, uh, totally uh, uh, databases. Yeah. And great. And every bit of inflation that we've had for the last hundred years has been stealing from us. And we should have never gone off the gold standard. And, you know, fiat currencies and central banks are horrible. And everything that's decentralized is good. And, you know, I think it's probably what leads us to where we are now, where, we're, we're, you know, I think a lot of people, if they're rational, are saying, hey, maybe we should have a little bit of regulation. <laughs> exactly. the news today, exactly. you know, even the news today, there was there was more corruption. Yeah. Um, so that's often how we react. And, and I'll tell you, one of the best things to do in the face of uncertainty is to recognize you're uncertain and sit in your discomfort and just do nothing. Yeah. And it's the hardest thing to do. And this is what therapists tell you, tell you to do. <laughs> like, it's one of the key things to do in, in response to anxiety, which is say, hey, I'm feeling uncertain. It's giving me anxiety. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do breathing exercises. Uh, I'm gonna do other things. I'm gonna take a walk. I'm gonna swim. I'm gonna read a good book. I'm just not gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm not going to act. I'm not going to act on it. I'm not going to act. I am not going to act. And I'm going to, I'm going to throw something out there that in your book that you haven't like fully launched, but you gave Bart and I the opportunity to kind of have like a sneak peek. You actually go into detail and share a lot of facts on your, um, in the first chapter, actually specifically on this. I thought it was super interesting. And you referenced that COVID. And, and so I thought that was great. And if people want to know more, or learn more about how like the brain is thinking and wanting certainty that's a great place to kind of go back and take a look 
Yeah, and one, one of the things I found really helpful is actually a, a mantra that was created in the 1960s by a psychologist whose name was Dr. Claire Weeks. And it, it goes like this. Face what you're feeling, accept it, then you you float, which means you 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 observe your feelings and your emotions from afar. So it's kind of like this idea of metacognition. And then you mm -hmm. let time pass. And so I had a I had a scare, a medical scare about a year ago where I had multiple blood clots. Oh, and they wow. and they couldn't really tell like what was causing it. So they're like, you know, maybe it's cancer. So they had me scheduled for like 10 days later to go do a CAT scan to see if it was certain types of cancer. And I will tell you, that is uncertainty. Yeah. This mantra, I'd say I'm, I'm facing that I'm feeling uncertain. I'm accepting it, that I'm, that I'm feeling worried. I'm going to float above it. And then the hardest is I'm going to let time pass. But I said it over and over and it was, it was fine. Uh, they actually, with the CAT scan found, I didn't have cancer. I had a, a, a a misarrangement of an artery in the vein, and that's been fixed by surgery, and I'm fine. But wow! Uh, but congratulations, it, by the way. Oh yeah, I know. It was like it was it, it was disconcerting um, to, to have you know, multiple blood clots. But um, so it's not even just investments. You know, just whenever we're feeling uncertain, it's like you know, instead of you know running around trying to do something, a lot of times we can't do anything. It's just better to have skills, coping mechanisms for dealing yeah. with uncertainty, and it's true in investing too. Right. You know, John, I'm going to, um, you said something earlier. So the social groups, um, and you call them echo groups or echo chambers? echo chambers. Yeah. Echo chambers. Yeah. So Tish and I, Tish has heard me say this before we've talked about this kind of thing. And, and one thing I've realized in life, and this was an observation and a realization about 10 years ago, and that is what if I'm wrong, you know, so yeah. I have a strong opinion on something, call it politics, religion, whatever it is. But the other side to that is if you look at these social groups and I'll, I'll pick on it again, Religion. How many religions are there or belief systems? Can we, I mean, oh, hundreds, thousands, thousands. Thousand, well, even right? within Christianity, there are so many different slices. And yeah, but each one, I, and so we just happened to land here, but you could do a politics also. Each one of those different factions or religions, it's their way, the only way, that's the way. That's mm -hmm. what they believe, right? Mm -hmm. And I got I mean, news for you. I don't care which one of those are from Buddhist to any one of the Christian. Yeah, can all be right. You're not, <laughs> you can't all be right. One of you are, but you can't all be right. Yeah. And I think it applies to even to your more, more current, um, you know, thoughts on COVID, thoughts on masks, thoughts. I mean, there is science and, and, but boy, have we seen a divisiveness in you know, politics. Everybody thinks they're right. Right. And everybody thinks they're right. And what I've found is, is really adopting that viewpoint um, has really helped me have, you know, some understanding of, people that think differently, they're in different groups than, than I am and say, you know, in, in, instead of trying to just pound facts at them, yeah. just realize they're, they're in a different group unless I become part of their group and slowly nudge them. <laughs> and, and even then, I mean, it, it's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change it. It explains a lot of what goes on with politics, how half the country yeah. thinks or whatever percent thinks the election was stolen. The other say that it doesn't. I mean, I have my own personal views, which side I'm on, but yeah. it, it, like if your entire social group says one thing, you're going to believe that. Right. Yeah. It becomes your life. Yeah. Right. And I think like you said earlier, right. We're information junkies. So you subscribe to the same, the same, let's call it like news channels or publications. And then that way you're, you know, drinking more of the same information and then, and then more of the same facts of that. And so it's, you're, you're going back to that. Okay. Solving the need for the uncertainty. You're trying to justify that and make sure that your mind feels comfortable with the decision that you're making. Yeah, exactly. 
So, John, other than the mantra, which I've written down and will definitely practice, I like the float above it. Maybe highly, high, very high level kind of flow through your book and yeah. maybe how it, would, how it would apply to investors today. Well, what I started, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago is really going on this quest for investment wisdom. And it's because mm -hmm. I was, you know, I think I, I like a lot of people, I was stuck in that information junkie mode, <laughs> you know, and, and really drinking from the fire hose of, you know, data and information. And, and, and what I found is that, you know, I, I, I read just tons of books and white papers about investing, but other areas, including, you know, psychology and behavior. Um, I actually yeah. have, it, it sounds more impressive than it is, but I actually have a certificate in decision making and behavioral finance from Harvard. Um, nice. It, it, it sounds awesome. In, in fact, my, my work as a joke got me a Harvard sweatshirt. Uh, my undergrad in law school, <laughs> University of Missouri, so very public school, uh, but it was, it was four days. But it was an intense four days. I'm a sure lot, it was. A lot of reading. Um, yeah. but, but, but anyway, um, so I kind of went on this, this quest for wisdom. And what I saw is that really great investors develop what I refer to in the book as investment mental models. So there are things to fall back on um, to help you make better decisions and more, most importantly, have better behavior in, in the face of uncertainty. So in my book, I have 35 of them. Okay. And really, that, that's really the book is centered around that. There's, there's 10 chapters, but each chapter focuses on, you know, a, a different, you know, related sort of mental models. And, and, you know, it's really helped me researching this book over the last decade or, or so. And it, it's, you know, I think it's helped our, our, our advisors here. It's helped our, our clients. And, and I really wanted to share that more broadly, you know, really kind of an express elevator, hopefully to wisdom. And, and I'll give you an example. And this is not one of the 35, but one of the most simple investment mental models out there is Warren Buffett's adage of be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So right. like, Love if, that line. If you just followed that. You would be a pretty successful investor compared to, you know, most people. It's simple, uh, you know, to, to understand. It's easy to understand, but it's it's not it's not simple to follow. Behaviorally, it's very hard. And that's and, right. <laughs> really, the, the book is a lot of those things is how to create this lattice work of mental models. And, and it's and my book isn't really directed towards, it, it, you know, I think professional advisors would like it and, and still, you know, hopefully learn from it. But it's really directed towards the individual that is receiving investment advice. Yeah. Right? Oh, great. You know, how, how to evaluate advice or how to make the advice work better because, um, you know, the most important thing in investing is behavior. It's just absolutely behavior. Everything else pales. I mean, what, what your allocation is and what investments you're in, um, you know, really take a backseat to, are you practicing optimal behavior, which is usually hard. It usually means doing things that never feel good. That's <laughs> really like yeah. counterintuitive. At least it feels at yeah. the time. It, it, totally, yeah. it totally is. So, yeah. yeah. And that would apply to, and, and Tish and I talked about this a couple of shows ago, the, um, it's published all, all over the place. Yeah. The, the finance, the investor psychology sine wave, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's at the peak of the wave when the market's at the highest, there's exuberance and this is great. You know, I'm never going to lose money. And then, you know, and that's when everyone buys, right? Not everyone, yeah. lots of people emotionally. And then when the sine wave gets to the bottom at despair, which maybe we're at now, we're close now, people are like, it's never going to get better. We can't buy. We're going to move to crypto or cash. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. There was an economist, he, he died in 1996. His name Hyman Minsky. 
And he became sort of famous in 2008, 2009. But, but basically, you know, prior to Hyman Minsky, what the economics profession said, what orthodoxy was, it, is that really the economy seeks equilibrium. Mm. That it gets knocked off course by mainly external events. So like, you know, the 1970s, you had the, you know, you, you had the energy crisis and, you know, you, you have some different things that, that will, will knock the economy off course. And mm -hmm. what Heinrich said is he goes, that doesn't adequately explain most recessions. Really what happens is the economy during times of stability causes behaviors of individuals and businesses that generate the seeds of its own destruction. So mm. summarize his views as stability creates instability, right? So if you if you back out, so the paradoxical notion of this, if you back out and look at a long-term perspective, the time of the greatest financial risk is when everything is going great. Because <laughs> that is when the, st the instability is being created, even though a lot of people can't see it. Right. When things are not stable is the point of maximum financial opportunity. Mm -hmm. I, and that I, makes sense. It makes total makes total sense. So Hyman Minsky died, you know, three years before the the dot-com crash, which again wasn't caused by an external shock. It was just, you know, uh, it was like what Adam Smith would call it, you know, animal spirits, right? Or and then you had the financial crisis, which wasn't caused by external shocks. Now the drop in 2020. And th that recession was caused by COVID. So that was an external shock. So it's not its not that external shocks don't matter. It just right. doesn't explain all the times that we have recessions or, you know, you know, drops in the economy. So Hyman Minsky is now listed as, you know, pretty much every list is one of the greatest economists of all time, but he didn't get to live to see it. Mm. Wow. What are, um, what are you telling your clients today? Well, Really, what we are telling our clients today really goes back to what we have been telling them when things felt better, hmm. which is first and foremost, have a margin of safety. And, and I'll tell you, 0809, hmm. probably the, the biggest lesson we took was that our clients didn't have a big enough margin of safety. And that made beha good behavior more challenging, yeah. both for them and for us. So after 08, 09, and, and just to tell you the demographic we work with, we, we mainly work in the 100 to $500 million client range. So it's, it's a bit different than, you know, you know, people that are just merely wealthy. I mean, these are like the super wealthy. So it, it affects things a, a bit, what we say. But we have advised our clients since the, the financial crisis to have at least a year of port, planned portfolio withdrawals in cash. And, and for a lot of clients, two to three years and then very near to cash. And then we've kept a decent amount of bonds, which hasn't helped in 2022, by the way, obviously, <laughs> since bonds have yeah. dropped. Where's the market history? One of those years. It happened. And we knew this could happen. You take, you yeah. know, if interest rates jump and you multiply by the duration and you have no real, you know, yield to offset the, the decline. It, 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 it happens. Right. So it's just a really bummer that we can't be rebalancing, you know, more back into stocks. But, but, but really the number one thing is, is to say have a big enough margin of safety and then we would um you know periodically especially when things seemed really frothy is we'd have these meetings where where we would talk about what are you going to do when the market's down 30 percent or 40 or 50 percent like let's role play that you know, let's wait he'll pause pause for a second i'm pausing you 
So you would do this when it was the market was good, like 2000 and like 21. You were like, hey, you're that was part of your everyday meeting. You would have that conversation. Yeah, not not everyday meeting, but yeah, periodically we'd say, you know, we we talk as a, a firm, like our principals, and we'd say, got it. Okay. At this next coming meeting, let's talk about behavior and mm -hmm. let's make sure, like almost like role player, like athletes do when they're you know thinking about yeah the performance. What, yeah. what are we going to do? How are we going to behave? And and also really pound on the table of making a hard decision of mm. we're going to we're going to take some gains, pay some taxes and add to our cash when things look really, you know, really good. Yeah. And because we don't we want you to be able to be good behaviorally. And I'll tell you, with rare exceptions, our clients have done pretty well d during all of this. Um, and I think it's because of the margin of safety. And, and again, like not every investor has that luxury. I mean, sometimes right. if, you're, if you're like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm you know, mass affluent, I, I guess I, I call them, you know, I'm, I'm wealthy, but you know, I'm worried about retirement. Um, you know, I need to make a certain amount of return. Um, you know, it may yeah. not be as easy to say, I'm going to, you know, keep a, you know, a bunch of, you know, in, in cash and, you know, even bonds. So it, 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 it can be hard to do, but I think again, the, again, the key to all this is behavior. Yeah. But, and, you know, really sticking the course is all about discipline. And, and I'll tell you, we don't we don't do tactical shifts. We don't advise our clients to do tactical shifts. We're not big into hedge funds. We're very focused on fees and taxes. And we do like private equity and, and venture capital and private real estate. But we do we do a ton of indexing. So even when we're dealing with a mainly hundred million and up crowd in the public markets, we do a lot of indexing, a lot of tax managed indexing. You know, we do boring muni bonds and we do cash and we focus on you know, fees, taxes, and behavior is really big. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit something. I know you hit something that Tish and I um, include as well. And so we, we create a family index. Our clients go through a holistic financial plan. That family index is, Hey, what, what return, what is our goal return that will ensure that you have a, a wonderful financial independence or retirement. And we have had some clients where it's like 4%. That's all. Right. And if, it, you know, and we've used this as an example, because it, that same client would come in like, hey, I really want to get more aggressive and let's get, you know, 10, 15 percent like, OK, but why risk that when we've clearly shown yeah. that with four percent of which that's you know a significantly less risk profile. Um, so that's what, number one. And then number two, um, this is our common fr uh, phrase these days is trust the plan, trust, trust the strategy. So to your point too, is we're not, well, I'm not gonna say we weren't tactical. We've made a couple little tactical shifts that I think were, were well-placed, but by and large, it's very procedural and it's very plan driven. It's time to rebalance. Hey, guess what? Your real estate funds did great. Let's shave off some of the gains. Absolutely. Guess what did do so good? Your stocks or equities rather. Let's make yeah. sure let's, yeah. so it's just, it's classic, but. And it can be painful. Like we've been, we've been adding yeah. to international, international for years. This international has continued to underperform. Right. Like, oh, right. International. international has actually done great this year. Local currency. Right. <laughs> local right. currency. Right. Yeah. Local, local yeah. currency. That's a good Meaning, phrase. Uh, US dollars. Uh, well, uh, I'll tell you, I'm really glad to hear you say that. We've had quite a bit of uh, many of, discussions. Uh, of, yeah. Discussions that. about international. So we're not the only ones in. Yeah, absolutely. Something interesting to add is, you know, I get, I get, um, I also contribute to Forbes and 
I often, the ones that I get quoted on most when they call and like interview and ask questions is about cash flow. And a lot of times it has to do with business operations and uh, projections of like how to make sure that they're staying on track and making sure that they're good to go. It all goes back to the same philosophy of what you were saying, John, at the end of the day of like making sure you have enough cash flow so you're prepared ahead of time and you're maximizing that. But you're only putting yourself to a risk level that is appropriate for you and you, your company or you or yourself. And so I think that's what Bart was saying as well earlier of like we go back to the clients as what is their family index, but it's the same thing. What you were you were sharing with your your clientele, like everyone has their own specific um, levels that's that's appropriate for them. And and but really at the end of the day, what I see is like if you're spending more than your means, then it ends up affecting you. And if you're not properly planning, then you're not going to hit those goals as aggressively unless like your company just goes crazy and you get a huge pop. But like consistent everyday household, that's usually the uh, very, very constant like recommendation, just making sure that, like you said, they're not over spending, they have enough cash to be able to cover what they need, they have the safety in play, and then they're taking on the uh, appropriate amount of risk. Amen, Sister Tish. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, I, I just looked up, but we're, we're hitting the, uh, the end of the game oh, yeah. here. So uh, one of my favorite things to do at the end of our chats and conversations is ask about your um, ultimate lesson learned. And in your case, as your time as advisor and, and author and all the things that you do, what would you say is your ultimate lesson learned? Well, I'll, I'll hit an investment one. So we, we are first and foremost, uh, first and foremost a, a multifamily office. And so what that means is and kind of at the, the level of wealth that we're, we're dealing with, you know, it doesn't make sense for a lot of our clients to be on like one platform. So like we, we when it comes to like public you know, stocks and bonds, we, we mainly custody at Schwab. But we have all sorts of clients that are like, oh, you know, I want to keep, you know, X dollars with my, you know, golf buddy at Morgan Stanley and, you know, Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and Bank of America, Northern Trust and Bessemer and all these. And we're, we're great with that. So we, we do a lot of flat fees and we're like, yeah, we'll 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 download. We'll report on it. We will oversee it. We will strategize. We'll wrap it into what, how we're investing. But as a result, we download every night from over 70 broker dealers, 70 custodians. Wow. And the vast majority of these are actual managed portfolios of other firms. And I will tell you that we get to see not just what investment firms say they do, we got to <laughs> You get to see what they really do. Like we're under the hood. Right. My conclusion after doing this for 20 plus years and getting to see under the hood is the following. There is no secret sauce. <laughs> that's great. There's a lot of people selling secret sauce. Secret sauce. Yep. Yep. And there, and that's not to say there aren't investments that do great. I'm not just saying everything's yeah. average, but yeah. when you, when you average it out, it's like this whole concept, um, you know, years ago, there was this, this paper that basically said, you know, all the outperforming, you know, active managers have what's called high active share. And it really is kind of saying that they have the, the lowest, you know, R squared to the index or the, the, the lowest uh, relatability to the, in, to the index. So they're the most, you know, different. 
and, and so people are like, oh, you got to go like totally concentrated and active. And it's true. Those are the highest performing active managers, but they're also the lowest performing. High active, right. Yeah. right. right. Yeah. So, so what you end up having is you, you have this industry, first of all, that first and foremost wants to pay and feed itself. That feels like it needs to justify itself by bringing managers or strategies or this or that, even if it's ETFs, we're going to bring you, you know, ETFs that focus on this, that or the other, and we're going to shift around. But that at the end of the day, tend to average themselves out. Like if there were, if there was a secret sauce and it was known, then everybody would do it and it would go away. <laughs> it's That's a little, right. It's a little bit like, secret anymore. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like the hedge fund industry. So like in this, this, this professor at, at Duke's business school looked in, um, you know, the, the early 2000s and, and he determined that there was about $30 billion of alpha or outperformance available in uh, hedge funds. And that equated to about a 10 or 11 percent outperformance a year because there was about 300 billion dollars in hedge funds. But then what happened is everybody's like, oh, my gosh, look at these hedge funds outperforming money plowed into hedge funds. The industry ballooned from 300 million to three trillion yeah. in the course of about five years. And the alpha turned hugely negative. That is what happened. So you, you can't have these areas where it's like, OK, there is this pattern. We see it. We can take advantage of it. The markets aren't you know, completely efficient. Great. But then by the time everybody plows in, it like it, it sinks the boat, right? So, you know, that's, that's what we see a lot of. And, you know, investors coming in after the money's been made <laughs> and, and, um, and then there's yeah. no secret sauce. So that is it. There is no secret sauce. I love it. Or if there is some, you can't get it until it's spoiled. Until it's, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's no longer good. Um, so John, how can, uh, other than IFOD.com, how can people reach you, find your book? Yeah, it's actually uh, the IFOD.com. Um, yeah, yeah okay. so um, I think I have two URLs for my book. The first is just my name, John M as in Michael Jennings.com, and also uh, uncertaintysolution.com. But yeah, my contact information is in there. Feel free to email me or text me or what have you. There's a pre order for my book. If, um, you know, if you're interested in that, that's great. Uh, if you sign up, I, I can, I'll send you things rarely. Um, or yeah, my, my blog is, uh, you know, lots of people thinks it's, it's fun. And if it's not, it's easy to unsubscribe. <laughs> that's great. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. This was a, a great conversation and, uh, yeah, it's going to be well received. Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to thank everyone who was uh, tuned in. We look forward to being in the studio again next week. Cheers. Tune in next week for the latest edition of the Zanbergen Report, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Catch up on our recent shows by visiting podcast.bartzanbergen.com. The Zanbergen Report is also available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Interested in being a featured guest on our show or have a question you'd like to hear us answer? Email podcast at bartzanbergen.com. The contents of this podcast episode do not constitute an offer of securities or a solicitation of an offer to buy securities and may not be relied upon in making an investment decision related to any investment offering Access Wealth Management LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Access does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. Opinions are our current opinions and are subject to change without notice. Prices, quotes, rates are subject to change without notice. 
Generally, investments are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed and may lose value.